Welcome to the Ancestral Alignment Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Sternell. The aim of this podcast is to empower people to take control of their own health by arming them with the tools to live a biologically appropriate life in our modern world. Through the creation of new habits and lifestyle practices, I want to enable better health, strength and vitality that nourishes all sectors of life. Today I have the pleasure of sharing a conversation I had with Dr. Bill Schindler a few weeks back. It was an absolute pleasure and such an honor to chat with Bill. Dr. Bill Schindler is the founder and director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Archaeology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, and the co-star of the National Geographic series, The Great Human Race, and Curiosity Stream, The Modern Stone Age Family. Bill is a food archaeologist, primitive technologist, hunter, forager, and chef. He is a strong advocate of traditional food ways and is constantly seeking out new ways to incorporate lessons learned from his research into the diets of modern humans. His work combines research from our ancient traditional past, global traditional food ways, and modern culinary arts to create food solutions that are relevant, meaningful, and accessible in today's world. He believes that only by fully reconnecting with our food can we as a species learn to eat like humans again. Hey, Bill, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm stoked to have you on today. Well, I can't wait for our conversation. I, I, I have so much I want to share, and I'm, I, I hope it's uh, useful to your audience. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'd love to start off with just a little bit of your background and your story and what you do, and yeah. Sure. Well, my, my story is it's a little bit sorted, and I came at food in a, in, in a, in a real roundabout way. I've always had a... Um, an interesting relationship with food. I, I think now, right now, I'm 47 years old. I, I'm the healthiest I've ever been by far. But uh, for the majority of my life, the relationship, my relationship with food has been somewhat unhealthy. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey in a, a suburb of New York City. And I grew up as a, you know, in, in middle school, elementary school, middle school, I was the pudgy kid in class. I was the kid that everybody made fun of. I was the kid who every time I walked past the mirror, I'd look at it and suck my gut in and then look past the next mirror and, and, and feel for some reason, something might've changed in those three seconds in between and, I, and, and then be disappointed in myself again. And my body image was terrible. And it didn't help that I grew up just a few miles from the beach. So when everybody else is having fun and, you know, I was dreading the summer because that meant that, you know, I'd have to expose, expose more of me. So I was the kid that always had the t-shirt on, even in the ocean, thinking that it was somehow shielding <laughs> the view. And it wasn't, obviously. Um, so I, I viewed food for that part of my life as something that, made me ugly and, and, and made other kids make fun of me. I never, I didn't really view it as something that was a source of nourishment. I mean, I knew deep down that I needed to eat in order to be alive, but I, I never made that connection that if I ate the right foods, I could look and feel, you know, absolutely incredible. Then I had a major shift in high school. I found sports. For the first time in my life, I found sports, uh, a sport that I actually was good at. All the other sports I was, I was not very good at, but uh, I found wrestling. And even though I came at it later in life, most, most of, of the really good wrestlers, especially in the U.S., start at a very young age. I started as a freshman in high school, but I had an amazing coach, um, and I dove in deep, and I was working out three or four times a day. And because of all that intense exercise, the weight just dropped off. 
Um, and it was almost, it didn't matter what I was eating at that point. I looked the way that I had dreamed of looking for the majority of my life. I was actually looking that way. So I equated that with health. But then something strange happened with food. I was no, it, was, it wasn't the thing that was making me ugly anymore, but it was the thing that I feared every week before I stepped on the scale to make weight. And this carried over into college. I was a Division One wrestler for Ohio State and Division Three wrestler for the College of New Jersey. And it's same thing. I mean, I looked the part of an athlete, but I wasn't healthy, and food was something I was scared of. And then when I finished with college, I wasn't a wrestler any longer. All that weight, because my eating habits hadn't changed. It was just I was exercising so hard. You know, all that weight came back on. And now I was no longer a teenager. I was in my 20s and my early 30s. And with that much amount of weight coming on, I was suffering from all sorts of issues, uh, digestive issues, the bowel syndrome. I had restless, restless leg syndrome. I had crazy uh, inflammation. I had joint pain, all of these things that even in my mind then I, I didn't equate necessarily with food. It was just, you know, that thing. So for that entirety of my life, for three decades, food was an incredibly unhealthy relationship with it. It was either something that made me fat or something I was scared of or caused me to miss making weight. And it wasn't until um, I really took a deep dive into understanding our ancestral dietary past and the diets of, of humans around the world through, you know, an, an archaeologist and anthropologist lens that I realized that food was so much more. Food was actually something that um, not only had the potential to nourish me, but actually the way that we approach food built us as a species, both biologically and culturally. And it has become the focus of my work ever since. Wow. What got you into that? Like, where did that world kind of open up to you? Well, it was, so I was, I, I have always been interested, you know, food has played such a central role in my life. I'm sure a lot of people that you have on that you speak to would say, Hey, food has always been a central part of my life. And most of the people saying that would say, Hey, it's because of this positive influence it's had, or the way it, it's been a central focus of my life, but for the wrong reasons. Um, right. And I, but I loved it. There was something about it that I, I, I loved, even though it was causing such distress in my life. I loved being in the kitchen with my mother and my grandmothers. I loved hunting and fishing and trapping with my father out of the woods and, and learning to butcher and doing all those sorts of things. But those always seemed like, and I know this is going to sound really strange, ancillary activities, right? It's, growing up in the 70s and 80s, especially in the U.S., if you were going to be healthy, you're supposed to listen to the USDA and the FDA and talk to your doctor and listen to your nutritionist and all these sorts of things. And they were all telling you the same thing, you know, the food pyramid and, you know, 60, 70% carbohydrates and fat is bad and margarine is good and all, those, you know, all of that. So, you know, my mindset for healthy diet was in that space. Working with my mother and my grandmothers in the kitchen was something that had nothing to do with health. It had something to do with bonding with, you know, the, that, that part of my family and being in the woods and hunting. I know this is going to sound crazy because it's such a focus of what I do now, but being in the woods and hunting and fishing and doing those things to me didn't have anything to do with food. It had to do with being with my father and bonding with my father and being a part of nature, which are all incredibly powerful and important things. But I never made that connection that foraging and hunting and fishing and trapping and cooking and all of those things come together to help us create the diets that built us as humans. But with that said, to answer your question more specifically, how did I get here? So I was, I've always been cooking. I've always been outside and, you know, in, in nature doing all sorts of things. And I suppose it was that drive that hunting is a, is a, is a powerful thing. 
fishing is a powerful thing. It is, you know, you are out there and, 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 and I don't, I don't know how to say it's the best way, but you're out there and you have the control or the, the opportunity to take a life, right? No matter how big or how small, you're taking a life. And the responsibility that comes with that is incredibly overwhelming and humbling at the same time. And I just felt that if I was going to do that, I needed to connect in the most powerful way possible with all aspects of hunting. It wasn't about pulling a trigger and something falling. It was about all the preparation leading up to the hunt and then everything, all the, pre- all the things that are uh, part of the responsibility and, and, and the gratitude afterwards, making the most of that animal. So I love gun hunting with my father, but I wanted something a little bit more closely connected with, with the actual animal. So I, I focused on bow hunting. And then when I started to learn how to bow hunt better, I wanted was, I need to know how to make the bow. I need to know how to make the arrow. And I want to do it in a way that's really representative of the, of the people that lived here thousands of years ago doing those same exact things. And I thought the, the connection that came with that would be powerful, and it was. But that's what drove me to archaeology, the idea that, you know, the answers to how to make these tools that are the one single step between me and nature or me and my food can those answers can be found on the archaeological record or at least the inspiration for those answers can be found there so I became an archaeologist for that very reason and you know as I learned more and more about archaeology and learned about ancestral diets I realized that I was on the right path to um, address not only my own diet but that of my entire family I love it that's a, that's such a great way to get into what you do every day for work and I feel the same in that, like, that, you know, I was just really curious about it and was like, all right, let's just make this my job and let's just, you know, figure out how to make, right? <laughs> what's better Absolutely. Than, yeah, what's better than, you know, doing this every day and it being a passion and something that I love learning about and being able to talk to you and, like, just really expand on that. And, yeah, hunting is beautiful and I love that you brought up that, um, I guess, you know, because I'm with guns and things like that. Yeah, I think there's definitely, like, a time and place for hunting like that because it's, you know, again, it's, it's a technology that we've, you know, created as humans, but the, you know, the attachment and the, you know, the real connection there when, you know, bow hunting or, you know, really being hands-on with something and it's really beautiful. Like I remember um, I got into spearfishing for a while and I remember the first fish that I caught and there was like that real mix between like complete excitement and joy and like, oh, you know, just, it was the most, um, just incredible like adrenaline experience I've ever had. And then seconds later, ho- like holding this fish and it flipping around in my hands and like my heart, I was like, oh my God, I've just taken a life and looking at the fish and you know, that, you know, it's, it's very, that connection to the food is something so, so beautiful. And so, you know, I feel like very, very deep energy exchange there. And I just, I love hunting for that reason. And I love, connecting with food in that way for that reason. Cause I feel like, you know, as, as modern humans, we're so, so disconnected from food and we're so far away from it. Like going to, you know, sure. the shops or supermarkets here is there's no, you know, everything's put like plastic packaged and there's no, you don't really see the animal, the energy or the life. And, you know, I feel like our health is completely reflective of that. And I love what you do as well with how much you're focused on food processing and all of that, because mm-hmm that's a massive part of it. And I was looking at your daughter, um, Brianna, she does the sourdough making. And I think yes, she does. So, that is awesome. Like, that's so incredible. I was like, to my partner, I was like, we've got to make sourdough like right now. Like, 
you know, just having that kind of relationship from such a young age with food is, you know, I feel like is so, so natural and so beautiful and such a big part of what we're missing. Like, I feel like with your story of how your relationship with food was when you were younger, I really relate to that. And I've talked to so many people and, you know, the amount of people that have issues around food and, you know, just whatever that is, whether that's like body image issues or like binging or whatever kind of, whatever it is, like, I feel like that all comes from that disconnect with food and not eating, you know, naturally. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also think, you know, that, that what comes with that connection and that connection that happens in the kitchen, that connection that happens in your backyard, if you're picking wild plants, that connection happens in the field, if you're hunting or in the ocean, if you're fishing, you know, that what comes with that connection is the, this insight and this education that you can't get elsewhere. Right. So I, I was, I'm the director here. We're in the Eastern Shore Food Lab, Washington College. This is where I'm, I'm airing from. Um, and it's, it's a unique teaching and research space. It's built around uh, my research for um, looking at the way food is processed to make it as safe and nourishing as possible and the way we've done this for millions of years. But, you know, I, we were doing an event called Fat Forward last month where we had a, a series of different um, sort of book study conversations and filming of documentaries and discussions afterwards. And it was all focused on um, you know, how uh, saturated fats have been demonized, and but the reality is you know, of the health benefits of it. And there was a question about, you know, from one of the participants, and then asked, we said, how much, you know, what, what's the percent? Like, how much fat should you eat? How much this and this and this? And, and, and they wanted a real detailed, granular answer. And my first response was, listen, I am not a nutritionist and I'm not a dietitian. I am not a medical doctor. I'm a, I'm a doctor of archaeology and anthropology. So I, I can't answer you in the way you're expecting an answer, but I think I can give you something that's even more powerful than that. You know, because again, the, those questions are not questions that we as humans have ever asked up until the past hundred years. We had no way of measuring the, you know, the amount of calories that came from fat up until like the very, very late 1800s. So these are questions we've never asked, but now that we're asking them and want these answers, we feel informed and, and empowered, but in fact, we know, you know, we're doing a terrible job because we've never been more sick as a species than the way we are now. And it's because of the way we feed ourselves. So I said, think about this. You know, if, if you're thinking about, you're trying to, to figure out how much fat you should have in your diet compared to how much meat you're eating and how much this you're eating, you know, the way I go about answering those questions for myself and for my family is think about the way resources were used in the past. Do not, you know, embark on a carnivore diet, think that you're eating the same way that your ancestors were and go and buy T-bone steaks from a package every week at the grocery store and, and think it's, it's a one-to-one -one correlation because that's not the way it worked. The way it worked, not always, but typically in the past, and I've spent a lot of time with indigenous and traditional groups around the world, killing and hunting and butchering and cooking and consuming everything from groundhogs in, I'm sorry, groundhogs, from guinea pigs in South America to genet cats in Kenya or Tanzania. The way it works almost all the time is that an animal is harvested. They use 90 something percent of that animal's food and then they go and harvest another animal. Now, certainly there's exceptions to this, but for the most part, this is the way that it works. So when you go to the grocery store and buy chicken breast this, you know, today and, and next in two days, you want chicken again, you go buy another chicken breast and you go buy another chicken breast. It's nothing like the way it was, right? It's, you would get a chicken, use the entire thing, sometimes use parts of it more than once, and then go get another chicken. 
So if you're thinking about how much fat, you know, the, way, the reason people are asking how much fat should I eat is because well, they haven't butchered an animal. They don't know how much fat is there or how much marrow is in those bones or how much marrow can you extract from the matrix of the bones from the bone grease. So the answer is, you know, get whole animals or half animals or, and, and I am a strong proponent of butchering at home. I, I think it's a fantastic way to not only empower yourself to make the most of that animal and do it in the most economical way, economical way possible, but the other people in your family, your kids who see it out of the corner of their eye and see a whole animal, a part of an animal, or at least something that represents an animal coming into your house, and then they see it on their plate, and they make that connection between animal and life and death and food, and it's all this, you know, uh, very real, visceral thing. Um, but the other part of it is you get to see how much fat is in this animal, and if you and if you were approaching that animal the way people around the world still do and the way all of our ancestors did, well, this is about how much fat you get. You know, that's all you get. And, and then when you're done with this fat, if you want more fat, you gotta go kill another animal. And, and, and I think that sort of connection through hunting and fishing and foraging and farming and butchering and all of those things can provide us the answers intrinsically that we're all searching for in books and documentaries and in our doctors and everything else. Totally. And yeah, it, it breaks my heart that, that we know where we go out and we search and we search and we search for these books and these numbers and these ratios of fat and protein and carbs and all that stuff. And we make it so, you know, we think we're so smart with, you know, getting all sciencey about it and geeking out over it. And I used to think, oh, I was so smart. Like I can measure my food and figure all this out. But like the, the real knowledge is so, so ancient and we don't, we don't need any of these, these new um, ways of figuring it all out. And that if we do just return to that, you know, ancestral lens on eating and hunting and living and, you know, butchering the animals ourselves and seeing the whole animal and, you know, and being more intuitive with it all that we don't have those problems that we do today, which I find is so funny. Like, you know, it's very sad, but it is quite funny that we, you know, we think we've created all these things that are so new and so helpful and so powerful and all this stuff. But, you know, that's clearly not really helping us at all. And that we've got like, you know, sicker and, um, yeah, than we ever have in history. And yeah, it's just funny that link between it and looking at food from, yeah, the ancestral lens and which I love. And, you know, I've spent many years like looking at it from the modern perspective and thinking, oh, maybe, you know, vegan or maybe, you know, paleo or this diet or this diet or low carb or high carb or whatever it is. But then just going like, okay, like I wasn't like, you know, my ancestors weren't sick, what they were eating. So what were they eating? And then looking into that. And then that's what's completely brought me to this. And yeah, I feel so strongly in that because of, yeah, my own experience with it and never feeling healthy on any of the diets that I did and just going from, okay, like, let's just figure out how connected I can get with my food, how much I can really understand without the, you know, calculators and numbers and look at it through that is, is really beautiful. Absolutely. And I think maybe, I, and I haven't said this yet, and I think I, I should, the basis, let me, if it's okay for a second, take a minute to just let everybody know what the basis for, uh, you know, my, my approach is and, and, and my message. Here, here it is in a nutshell. Uh, you know, if you look at us as a species biologically, as, as modern day humans, and even our ancestors through millions of years, we are 
biologically one of the weakest species on the planet. So we, you know, what I like to say is we can't run very fast. We can't swim very fast. We can't fly. We can't dig into the ground very well. We can't climb scale the sides of mountains very, you know, eclipse walls very easily. We can't do any of these things very well. And that translates into a direct inability to um, access resources from our environment using just our hands and our teeth and these sorts of things. So we create technologies that allow us to actually get access to resources from our environment. But more importantly, and more directly to the conversation that we're having, we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts on the planet as far as species are concerned. At the same time, we have these incredibly large bodies and incredibly nutrient expensive, massive brains, um, both of which require a massive amount of nutrition. So how do we do this? How do we get to the place where we have these large bodies, these huge brains, but we really can't very easily get stuff from the environment and we have an even more difficult time digesting any of those resources to turn it into something that our bodies can efficiently do something with? And the answer is technology. And I don't mean sitting there making corn syrup for lab coats. You know, that, that's not what I mean. I mean, beginning three and a half million years ago, we made our first stone tool and started for the first time ever to overcome our biological limitations and interact with the outside world in incredibly new and powerful ways. So that first stone tool appears at almost the exact same time we start seeing the first butchering sites. So, you know, we know we're confident that that stone tool was being used to butcher, scavenge animals. We weren't hunting yet, but scavenge animals. And over time, we invented technologies such as you know, different types of hunting and trapping and fishing technologies. We invented fire. We invented things like fermentation. And all of these technologies were, fo most of these technologies were focused on um, not only accessing resources from our environment, but transforming those resources into their safest and most nourishing forms possible for our bodies. You know, we are true omnivores. Humans eat all sorts of things. But the thing that we don't stop and talk enough about is that, yeah, we eat all sorts of things. We eat grains. We eat dairy as adults. We eat um, animals. We eat all sorts of different things. But the hard, fast truth is that we are not biologically designed to eat almost any of those foods. Like, none. We have, you know, cows are designed, they, they have the biological equipment to safely and efficiently digest tough vegetable fibers like grass and those sorts of things. Uh, granivorous birds like geese, for example, are biologically designed to eat grains and safely and efficiently make use of those things. Um, I don't know, hyenas are you know, biologically adapted both uh, you know, physically to get flesh off of carcasses on the savanna and then their guts are designed to make safe and efficient use of the, you know, the, the, the carnage that they're pulling off of these of the carcasses. We're not, we don't have any of those things. Meanwhile, we include all, all of those in our diets and have for a very, very, very long time. So to me, questions surrounding what we should be eating, the very thing that you were talking about, I used to have calculators and graph paper out every day in high school, forgot to the gram, exactly the amount of fat and protein and carbohydrates and things we should be eating. I, I should eat every week. I did it every single week. Um, those conversations are ridiculous. Those, those approaches to diet are ridiculous. Um, and that is what I call the what, you know, what we should be eating. Um, it is a question that no other animal asks, but every other animal figures out without nutritionists and dietitians and doctors and those sorts of things. Um, so let's put the what question aside for a minute. The thing that humans do differently than every other animal is that we 
use technologies to process our food before we eat it to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. And that's the thing that we need help with. That's the, that's, that is the information that was passed on generation to generation to generation from grandparents to young kids to, you know, it was tribe specific or clan specific or whatever. That is the information. That is, that is the, um, the key to our, our dietary past over millions of years that built us as a species and has kept us, uh, you know, this incredibly healthy human species supporting these bodies and brains, even though we don't have the guts to do it. Our gut size is 60% the size of, it, of what it would be in a similar size primate. And we have these, you know, obviously these, these, these massive nutritional requirements. So what I mean is if we are not designed to eat tough vegetable material, if we're not designed to eat grains, if we're not designed to consume dairy as adults, if we're not designed to eat meat, what do we do? Like, what, what is the answer? Is the answer we don't eat any of those foods? No, that is not the answer. The answer is we figure out the technologies that are required to transform that resource into its safest and most nourishing form possible. What's crazy is it almost always mimics something that an animal that is designed to eat those foods do already naturally. We just do it outside of our body. So for example, um, a cow eats grass and tough vegetable materials and they do it because they're, they have two biological adaptations. First, their teeth and their palate, the roof of their mouth is designed to uh, physically break down that tough vegetable material really, really well. And then they swallow it and it goes into a four chambered stomach. And the first chamber is called the rumen where it, it ferments. So this partially broken down vegetable material goes into its fermentation chamber and it ferments and they throw back up in their mouth. It's called chewing the cud and they break it down some more and then they close down and they ferment some more and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, when it's ready, it goes into the rest of their digestive tract, which is you know where it can get, the nutrients are broken down properly where they can go where they need to be. So what do we do? We don't have that, but we ferment. Every single traditional culture in the world, I've never found one that doesn't have fermentation at the core of its um of its of its culinary you know approaches to food it has fermentation and we put it in and in, in, we bury stuff in swamps or we make we clay vessels we bury into the ground or mason jars on the counter whatever it is we ferment before we eat it that's one of the ways that we can break down tough vegetable materials allow the nutrients to um, um, be in a state that our bodies can actually do something with and there's a ton of other examples but that's just one so in my mind the questions we should be asking are not what we should eat, but how we should eat. How should we approach that particular resource and do everything we can to make it as safe and nourishing as possible? And here's two really cool things that come out of that approach. Number one, you know, you mentioned earlier, like vegetarian or pescatarian, whatever your approach to food is. I mean, I certainly have ideas about um, the role that animal animals played in our diets. I think it was crucial and it was essential. And in fact, access to animal-based products, uh, I'm confident, especially fat, made us what we are today. But regardless, this approach to eating can improve your diet no matter what you're doing. So if you're a vegetarian, you can be a healthier vegetarian by doing these things to your vegetables. If you're a, a, a carnivore, if you're keto, whatever you are, if you are approaching each and everything that you eat and making full use of the traditional ways of transforming that resource into its safest, most nourishing form, it will improve your diet. Uh, so that's, um, that's number one. 
Number two, you know, this approach frees us from counting calories and counting grams of fat. I, I haven't, I have, I am healthier than I've ever been my whole life. I haven't stepped on a scale in probably seven years. I haven't counted a gram of protein or fat or car I, in probably longer than that. And I used to be the guy that was sitting there with graph paper and the calculator and all, you know, you don't need to do that. You just need to approach food at no matter what it is you're eating, you're doing everything you can to make it as safe as nourishing as possible. And I'm sorry, one more final thing. We are hardwired to, we are hardwired to nourish ourselves properly. We are. I'm convinced that if we are presented with real food processed the right way, we will, and every other animal does this, we will eat the things that we should be eating. We will eat till we're satiated and won't eat anymore. Um, and we won't eat things we're not supposed to eat. We will eat things we are supposed to eat if we're in two other bodies presented with real food. And the cool thing is, you know, our bodies are hardwired. That's why we have such visceral and, you know, um, sensual really reactions to eating. It is, it is an entire body experience. And that's because if we do it right, it should feel good. Right. So, and I always say the three things that we, um, we are hardwired to do and every animal is are the three things that are required for survival of the species. Reproduce, remain safe, and nourish ourselves and our families. And that's why every one of those things, um, you know, when we're engaged in every one of those things, if we're doing it right, it is an entire body, sensual, visceral experience. And eating is one of those things. It's, it's, it's through millions of years of evolution to figure that out. You don't need a book. You don't need anything else. You can do it. But when you process food properly and it's, it's, it's cooked or fermented or whatever it's done properly, those, and those nutrients are available to our bodies, the reaction that we have to it is the positive reaction. Like that is food that tastes good. That is food that is satiating. And if you're eating those sorts of meals, every, and this should be a goal for every single person for every single meal. And it's going to sound absurd. And the fact that it sounds absurd is one of the most absurd things in the world. But food is supposed to nourish us. And we are hardwired to um, go after that nourishment, right? It, it, it's just the way that it works. So that means if every, every single time that we sit down to a meal, every time we get up, we should feel better than when we sat down, right? Every time we finish eating a meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, whatever it is, you should feel better than when you started that meal. That's the point. And if you don't, something's wrong. But the problem is we've normalized feeling bloated. We've normalized overeating. We've normalized, you know, feeling crappy because most of the food we have access to is such junk. And just as bad, for some reason, we believe that in order to get, sh get in shape, we should put ourselves through some sort of discomfort or pain. Like we should feel hungry if we're going to lose weight. We should go without if we're gonna get in shape. And that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like why, what, what sort of evolutionary process would result in us having to feel discomfort or pain or something to better ourselves? It doesn't make sense because we wouldn't make those decisions, right? Especially unconsciously. So a goal should be for every single person that every time, every time you get up from a meal, you should feel better than when you sat down for that meal. And if we all think about it, how many times does that really happen? For many of us, very, very rarely. I just find that one of the funniest things that the, the amount of people that I talk to that are like, 
or, you know, like I'm trying to lose weight or trying to do whatever it is. And they're like, okay, like I have to train and be in pain or like exercise when I don't want to or when my body is sore. Like the amount of people that, you know, I'll train, they're like, oh, my body is so sore. And I'm like, oh, like take a day off. And they're like, no, no, I have to come in and I have to do it. And just that mindset in itself is, you know, super damaging and the body will never recover and you'll, you won't get the results that you could. Yeah. And just, and even with food as well itself, that, um, that through, through eating, we feel like we need to have less and less and less in order to get more nourished or to, to feel better or to look better or whatever it is. And it's so clear that, you know, depriving yourself of those nutrients, like I did that for ages, like did definitely didn't eat enough. And there was a, there was a, made like massive things that were so so clear and obvious but at the time never linked it to food like never realized that oh i have really poor energy or oh i need to sleep 12 hours a night or my skin's breaking out or my digestion's really poor and never linking any of that stuff to food and always just thinking oh it's normal oh it's puberty oh it's stress like all of these like external things and never thinking about okay what am i putting into myself and what is that telling my body as well like just that you know, when I'm eating abundance of food, like now I feel like I'm probably eating the most I ever have in my life and having that abundant amount of food and like good quality, nutrient dense food. It, it, the, yeah. the message that that tells my body of, yeah, we're in abundance. Yeah. We're killing it. Yeah. Let's like, you know, that, I guess that mindset of like, it is safe in that, that feedback that it is safe to reproduce and that, you know, you're living abundantly and that you're in a good place. Just having that yeah. feedback. Uh, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the, I, I really think, listen, there are incredible nutritionists, incredible dietitians, incredible doctors doing massively important work. And I don't want to take anything from them. And I, that's awesome. You know, one of the things we do do as humans very, very well, we teach one another. It's something, it's something that humans do. So I do at the same time think that something that's so important and you know, human and, 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 and hardwired it, it, such as nourishing ourselves and our families is something that we need to take responsibility of ourselves. And the best way to do it, you know, again, podcasts, documentaries, books, all these things are awesome. And they're very, very inspirational. You know, like the work that you're doing, thank you. It's so very important. At the same time, I want people to take ownership of this thing that has, again, has been part of our lives for millions of years. And remember that to nourish ourselves, we, the, the first homo sapiens, modern day homo sapiens, individuals that looked just like us, same brain size, same everything, appear about 300,000 years ago. And I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years of, of our ancestors feeding themselves incredibly well, living in caves with fire and stone tools, right? So the, for, for, for people who are um, nervous about being able to, you know, I, I, I don't care what apartment you live in or flat in New York City or mansion, you, I, you all have a kitchen. It, it can be in a dorm room. You all have access to a kitchen that's better equipped than our ancestors who were doing this with sticks and rock and, and clay pots. So it, it, it's possible that it, it, so the answer for me is get into the kitchen. If, if, if the focus, if the main priority of our ancestors for millions of years was not necessarily what the food was, but more how they approached that food, 
that's exactly the stuff that we do in the kitchen, right? The cooking, the, 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 the butchering, the fermentation, the whatever it is. So to me, the way that you learn these things, you know, the way we learn about food and learn how to nourish ourselves and our families is by getting into the kitchen. And here's what I, what I typically suggest. It doesn't do anybody any good to make a brilliant, amazing Sunday dinner for your entire family and then, you know, not worry about what you're eating the rest of the week. That, that one meal didn't do much. Yeah, it brought people together, which is great culturally uh, and emotionally, but changing one meal a week doesn't transform your health. What transforms your health or the health of your family is by changing the foods that you eat every single day or multiple times a week. So that means things like the bread that you're eating or the mayonnaise you're using or the, the meats that you're putting on there or the cheese that you're using. You know, those things that you, you and your kids are eating and, and, you know, every single day, if you tr replace that with the safest and most nourishing forms of those foods, you will make incredible strides towards, you know, real, true, genuine health. about real bread, real cheese, real hot dogs, is to make them yourself. And I know that, especially for people that don't cook a whole lot, but I'm not suggesting that you make every single thing that your family eats every single day. Although that's wonderful. That's what we've done in our house. Um, and uh, it's been wonderful. It is incredibly time consuming and I get it. But that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is you take the foods that you eat every single day, pick an element of that, you know, one at a time, and learn to make it entirely from scratch, even if you do it just one time. And if you do it just one time and you screw it up and nobody eats it, you still leave that meal or that experience with more intimate knowledge of that food than you would ever get from a book. So you know, what, what I like to say is, again, if, you're, if your kids eat a sandwich every day, around here, um, you know, most kids take a sandwich in their lunch every single day for school. And if you think about the amount of sandwiches that they eat over their lifetime until they're 18 years old, and then you think about an entire sandwich has two pieces of bread, that's a massive quantity of bread that these kids have consumed. And, and think about the power of just changing that one thing. If all you did was change the bread that they're eating, and instead of you know the sliced pan, Wonder Bread, whatever junk that you put on that sandwich, and it was a, it was it was sourdough, like real traditional long fermented sourdough bread, which doesn't have to be in a big rustic loaf with a thick crust. I mean, we make a, a beautiful um, sandwich bread that is soft and is you know looks like sandwich bread. It is sandwich bread. It's just you know sourdough bread. If you ch change that one thing over the you know your kid's life by the time that they graduate from high school. You've made an incredible difference. So again, and, and then even if you make that bread, you've made it you've a really wonderful one. You know, start the sourdough mother, you've gone through the whole process. You make the bread, you cook the bread. It doesn't turn out quite right. Maybe a slice or two gets eaten and you never make it again. By the time you walk into the grocery store again to buy bread, you know more about bread than you've ever known before. And all that marketing and fancy labeling and product placement on the shelves becomes meaningless. And you, you buy the right bread to not only nourish your family, but you're using your paycheck to support the food manufacturers that are doing it right. That's incredibly powerful.
Yeah, that's great. And I love, I love the idea of even just giving it a go, even if it's just once, like, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I ferment cabbage or, you know, how do I do these things? And, and then having that knowledge when you go and you do buy it or you do source it from somewhere else, knowing the energy that goes into that and having, having more respect for that. And that's something that I really, really like about hunting and, you know, those sorts of things, those processes, because you know, everything that goes into killing an animal so that when you go to the butcher and you go, yeah, I'll take a T-bone, it's not a T-bone, you know, you know that that's, oh, that came from the lumbar part of the spine and that, you know, the life that went into that and the energy and that, you know, all everything that went into that piece of meat that is on your plate at the end of the day, there's a lot more thought that goes into that. And that's a practice that I've really enjoyed implementing is thinking about it when I sit down to a meal and being like, okay, what is that? Where did it come from? What, like, you know, what was its life experience and just being grateful for that and being grateful for the access to that. And even if I, if, even if it was something that I bought from the butcher rather than hunted myself, like just being aware of that and really thinking about it rather than just being like sweet food, let's eat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. A hundred percent. And you know, the, again, I, I have very strong feelings about the best way to connect with food your environment, your community, your health, all of those sorts of things. And some of them sound insane and some of them sound cumbersome. Some of them sound time consuming and they are, but they're incredibly important, but they are all of those things at the same time. Um, hunting, you know, getting set up to go hunting and actually engaging in it and getting access to all, all of that takes a lot of time. And some people might not really even have the desire to do some of these things. And I completely get it. I understand we're living in a time period where we, we value convenience and we think about food as something that, you know, we should just be eating. Right. And, and we should just be bringing it in and eating and, 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 any, and any effort or thought that goes into it is, is a burden, but I'm, I'm not suggesting that you have to hunt for all of your meat or butcher all of your animals or forage for all of your vegetables or cook all of your food from scratch. Again, doing that would be awesome. But even if somebody wanted to, we don't have, if everybody wanted to, we don't have enough resources to make that happen for everybody all the time. Anyhow, what I'm suggesting is that if food and diet and health and sustainability and the ethical treatment of animals and the environment are important to you, then engage in a couple of these things now and then you know go fishing once or a couple times a year go foraging once every season and if all you're doing is picking dandelions in your backyard with your kids for two hours on a saturday once a year then do it that's a lot more powerful than going into the grocery store and picking up you know a, a box of pre-washed salad mix right so though even doing them every now and then and most importantly doing them with the people that you love is moving, it is visceral, it is empowering, it is connective in ways that you can't imagine. And even if you only do them now and then, when you go into the grocery store, it's sort of like a reset button. All the advertising and marketing that are there to do nothing but make other people money, none of it is there to make you healthy. It is there to make other people, other people money. You see through that, and you you're pulling back this veil of 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 of, of corporate modern food industry, and you can shop at least shop for yourself in a completely different, more informed way. Yeah, I absolutely love that, and it's just that opening of the eyes, like exactly what you said, pulling back that veil and 
and seeing things, you know, even just stepping back from it and being able to, you know, kind of get it more of an observational view on what's really going on, what really happened here and being able to see that and just have that, you know, feedback and that relationship with food is completely different and totally transforms it. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I think is really important and, and one, of, one of the things I like about wild resources, you know, wild plants, wild animals, those sorts of things is that the act of foraging, hunting, fishing, clamming, trapping, whatever is again, connective and is, is a brilliant way to, you know, to again, connect with your food, your environment, all those things. But it also allows you to get that reset button for what these resources really were. For example, you know, I, I'm, I'm a part of the ancestral health community and I, and I love to be a part of it. And I think it's a very uh, powerful way to, to have us view uh, diet and health. But one of the, one of the things that the act of foraging and hunting has allowed me to do is to actually see and have close relationships with the plants and the animals that are much more similar to those that our ancestors were eating. So in other words, you know, yes, our ancestors ate fruit. They did. We know for sure that they did. But the fruit that they were eating is nothing like the fruit that's available in the grocery store. The fruit that's available in the grocery store today has been bred for size and for sweetness, not for health. And if you ever saw a wild orange, it's the size of your thumbnail and is incredibly bitter and isn't sweet at all. If you, you know, wild banana looks nothing like the bananas that are in the grocery store. I mean, the modern versions of these things in the grocery store are more like candy bars than they are like, you know, a wild fruit. So it's, it's really good, you know, because, because you can, you can listen to somebody say, listen, our ancestors were eating, you know, a certain amount of fruit. And then all of a sudden you feel like it gives you massive quantities of fruit if you want to get healthy. But the fruit that you're getting at the grocery store is nothing like the fruit that our ancestors are eating. The same goes for vegetables. And in some cases, the same goes for uh, some of the animal resources we have access to. So by, you know, I know a lot of people that are listening probably have no desire to go out and hunt. And I completely get it. Go foraging. It is, it is easy. I have taught foraging in all over the world, in cities all over the world in Dublin and I give us tour foraging tour every year in, in, in the middle of Washington DC and we and part of the foraging goes on to the lawn of the capital and we forage on that you know one of the most manicured lawns in the world to, to, to look and to see what kinds of wild plants are actually there. You don't have to live in the middle of the country to have access to wild plants. You can literally be anywhere. It's incredibly accessible. Yeah I absolutely love that. I remember um, I was down at the beach one day and my mate pointed to a plant and it was like some kind of, um, some kind of spinach, but like it was, um, I didn't even know what it was called, but, and yeah, and we, we cut it up and we took it, we made a curry with it. And I was like, what the hell? Like, this is so cool. And it tasted really good, but really different. And, you know, similar, like kind of same, same idea as spinach, but very, very different. And, and just beautiful to be able to see that cool. Like there really is food everywhere. If you open your eyes to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's free. You know, these things, <laughs> these things are free. They, they're absolutely free. So, you know, again, I think uh, there's so many things we could talk about with our dietary past and, you know, things that groups around the world are engaged in. And all these things are, first of all, to me, incredibly fascinating and uh, incredibly informative. And it, it, it truly informs the way that I eat and my family eats. But the, the core base 
of, of what I think we need to do in order to nourish ourselves with the most amazing diet that is connected to, you know, the environment is connected to our communities, connected to our families, connected to ourselves, is literally just get back into the kitchen and pick up the whisk and pick up the knife and for what, at, at whatever level you're comfortable with, try to cook the foods that you're eating all the time in, you know, completely from scratch. It's, it's really, really powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I have, a, I have one more question for you in, in regards sure. to what you were just talking about with fruit and vegetables. What kind of um, fruits and vegetables do you think like that are, that we have access to in the modern world that are okay and that are, you know, aren't so high in plant toxins or haven't been modified as much or are safer to consume? Yeah, that's a really, really, really good question. Um, so just to, to set the, lay the groundwork for this, one thing that everybody needs to realize, I believe, is that every single plant on the planet has toxins. Every plant has some level of toxin in them. Some of these toxins, if you eat the plant, will kill you. Some of them will make you sick. Some of them will build up in your bodies over time and, and wreak havoc years down the road. Um, some of them are incredibly easy to detoxify. Um, and some of them won't cause problems at all. Some of them actually with the toxins come really unique flavors and even medicinal values uh, of certain things. Most of our spices have um, very high levels of toxins that they're okay for us because we're eating incredibly small doses of them. But if we ate a massive amount of, of some of these, even uh, these spices and herbs, we, we'd have all sorts of issues. So, you know, number one, we need to be aware of the fact that plants have toxins, but at the same time, um, plants have been in our diets forever. Plants have been in our diets before any animal food got in our diets and have been in our diets ever since. So I am not advocating removing plants from our diets. What I'm, what I'm advocating is using those same approaches to acquiring the plants and also to making them as safe and nourishing as possible to transform them into something that we can eat without ill effect. In other words, it nourishes us instead of making us sick. Uh, so again, number one, plants have toxins. And number two, even though plants have nutrition in them, not much of that nutrition is in a state that is difficult for our bodies to make use of unless we do something to them. So uh, now that said, sort of laying the groundwork, what plants do I eat and how do I eat them? Well, let's start with plants that I don't eat or don't eat very much of. I have become in, in recent years keenly aware of, of a toxin that actually scares the hell out of me, uh, plant oxalates. So um, plants that have oxalates in them are things like spinach, Swiss chard, kale, almonds, many nuts in general, believe it or not. Um, there are a, a lot of different foods at different levels. And the problem with oxalates, and we'll use that sort of as an example for this conversation because we could spend hours just talking about plants, but um, the problem with oxalates are under a microscope, they look like little tiny shards of glass. And our body knows that it should be, it should be afraid of these things. So when we consume them, our bodies take these oxalate crystals really um, and sequester them and put them in different places and store them and, and build protective you know, coverings on these things. And quite often, unfortunately, it's in our joints and in our extremities different places as well. And over time, they can, they can uh, cause all sorts of problems, literally all over our bodies. And 
it, they're a problem. But one of the biggest problems with them is that you don't see the direct, you know, if you ate something and it made you sick an hour later, you wouldn't eat it again. But if you ate something and it's stored a little bit, you ate some more and it's stored a little bit, and you ate some more and it's stored a little bit. And it wasn't until seven, eight, nine years down the road that you experienced the problem. Number one, it's hard to put two and two together. And number two, you wouldn't really understand the dangers of that plant um, very, very easily. And, and unfortunately, some of the plants that are touted as being incredibly healthy for us have high amounts of oxalates in them. Now, oxalates weren't too big of a problem in some of these plants in the past because we ate so seasonally. So if a plant like spinach has oxalates, which it does, and we only ate the spinach when spinach would naturally grow in our area, well, we'd have a little bit of an oxalate load for a while, but we'd have a plenty of time without eating massive amounts of spinach for our bodies to, to rid themselves of the oxalates. But now we have two problems. One is we can ship and store food and get it from all over the world any time of the year very, very easily. And number two, we, we have a, a, a view of, a, of nutrition and, and, and the way we talk about diet and health where we, we take a food, we call it a superfood, and then everybody, you know, some is good, more is better, and they eat massive quantities of it every day. So I know people who eat spinach shakes, drink spinach shakes every single day. And sometimes they actually add kale to it, which is even worse. So um, we're, we've created a situation in some of these uh, plant toxins that weren't necessarily there for some of these plants in the past just because of the way we consume or overconsume them. So I do tend to stay away from plants that have high amounts of oxalates. Um, Plants, the, uh, we, uh, another good example of a plant that has uh, not only oxalates in them, but other major, major toxins like glycoalkaloids are potatoes. And um, I know a lot of people eat potatoes. A lot of people think they're incredibly healthy. If you looked at, I, I did a bunch of research in Bolivia and Peru uh, a year and a half ago where um, I was living with and learning from in the indigenous communities whose ancestors actually domesticated the potato about 10,000 years ago. And the wild ancestor to potatoes is incredibly toxic. And the early, uh, some of the early domesticated versions, which still, some of them are still under domestication now, are incredibly toxic and will kill you unless they're detoxified properly. So I was there to learn about how to detoxify them. And uh, because the modern versions of potatoes still have those toxins hanging around, they're just in lower doses. So what I wanted to do was understand how they, they're traditionally processed so that, you know, with the hopes that I could bring some of that knowledge back here and uh, apply those same technologies even to our store-bought potatoes to make them even healthier. And you know what, it works. And I'll give you a great example of this. Number one, um, if you think about the reason plants have toxins, it's because they're protecting themselves from outside predators and insects and fungi and these other sorts of things. So number one, the highest toxic toxin load in a potato is in the skin. And for the amount of time that I spent in South America, and I mean, the people I are with ate massive quantities of potatoes, massive quantities, except in one application, um, when they eat the potatoes with clay for de detoxify. Other than that, they always peel the potatoes. I mean, always peel them. So number one, the first thing I would say is if you're eating potatoes, peel them, period. I don't care what they say about um, how much nutrition is in the skins. It doesn't matter how much nutrition is in the skins. It's not worth it because of the toxins you're getting in the skins. And number two, one of the ways that they detoxify potatoes is through fermentation. So that's one of the things that we do at home 
um, and here at the food lab is before we do anything with most of our potatoes, we, um, we ferment them and then go ahead and, and, and do whatever application. So I know that didn't directly answer your question. I know we're running out of time. So very quickly, um, I eat mushrooms, massive quantities of mushrooms. I eat onions, I eat garlic, I eat broccoli, I eat uh, cauliflower, um, I eat celery, I eat carrots, but I always, almost always ferment the carrots. There's just so much sugar in carrots that they, they, not only do they ferment very easy, but the fermentation not only helps break them down, but also gets rid of some of the sugars. Um, I, I will eat, believe it or not, most vegetables. I eat a lot of cabbage, but most of the vegetables that I eat, again, it's not about the actual plant or the what I'm eating, it's what I do to it. So I'm almost always doing some sort of processing to that vegetable to make it as safe and healthy as possible. And quite often that's fermentation. Awesome. I love that. Thank you so much for all of that knowledge. Um, I'd just like to finish off with how people can connect with you. Absolutely. So um, my wife and I have a company called Eat Like a Human. And our mission uh, and, uh, is to teach people how and empower people and inspire people to eat the way our ancestors ate, the diets that literally built us as humans. And most of that, like I, I, we spent the entire hour talking about, is focused on transforming the raw material into the safest and most nourishing form possible. So there's a lot of, of focus on, on hunting, there's a lot of focus on foraging, but most of it is on what we can do in our kitchens to take advantage of the resources we can get either in the field or in the supermarkets and nourish our family, transform it into their safest and most nourishing form possible. So um, we do, uh, we have a blog, we have a strong social media presence, we have um, on-demand uh, 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 cooking classes, we have in-person retreats and cooking classes, those sorts of things as well. And you can find out, uh, you can contact us or, or, or see that information at eatlikeahuman.com. So www.eatlikeahuman.com. And uh, our, on social media, I'm at Dr. Bill Schindler. So at B-R-B-I-L-L-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R. And the other thing I would add is um, if, if anybody is interested in the teaching and research aspect of the archaeology and anthropology, um, you can check out the Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College. And if you go and if you just type that into Google, it'll come up. It's, and that's the center that I founded and direct here at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on, Bill. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. If you got value from this, please share it around and tag Bill and myself and let us know what you think. It really helps to share the message of ancestral health and wisdom. Links to connect with Bill and myself are in the show notes below. 